Hi, everyone. It's Mo Bendari, Editor-in-Chief of Ortho Evidence. I have with me uh, Professor uh, of Orthopedic uh, Surgery and Healthcare Evaluation, Dr. Rudolf Pullman, who also works at Leiden University Medical Center. And he has been um, involved in research for decades. And we're going to chat a little bit today, Rudolf, about just the type of research you're doing, and more importantly, the broader context uh, of the research you're doing. So first of all, welcome. Well, thank you, Mo. It's uh, great to... Uh, be on this orthopod, uh, and uh, it's great to have a chat with you because uh, I really enjoyed those uh, during my fellowship and uh, onwards uh, at Mac. And uh, so it's great to uh, uh, to see you, and uh, we can discuss a bit about this. Okay, so let me just start off by by sort of posing a broader question and getting your challenge uh, or or your approach to how you're going to be handling some of these bigger healthcare issues. Research is critically important, right? Evidence is critically important in making healthcare right. de- making healthcare decisions. But the challenge we always face is there's so much information. How do you how do you continually use the right information? And if you don't have the right information, how do you identify gaps? How do you decide how you're going to filter everything so you could ultimately have a process that continually improves and allows better yeah. care for our patients? So maybe you can speak broadly to the initiatives you're involved in. Um, so that'll help give us some guidance. Yeah, so th- this actually started with uh, uh, evaluating our guidelines that we figured out that uh, about 50% of the recommendations in these guidelines are based on uh, level four or three evidence. So that's pretty weak recommendations. Uh, so uh, actually these are unanswered questions. And what we started to do is to uh, ask the developers of guidelines to also uh, recommend future research questions. And uh, then we uh, started a, a process uh, with the guideline committees and also the, the working groups and the orthopedic association uh, patients, of course, are involved and um, insurance companies to prioritize our unanswered questions into a research agenda. And uh, uh, we've done this twice and now we're trying to see if we can make a modular agenda to see uh, which questions are most relevant to answer. Um, some questions maybe are answered uh, uh, by other groups around the world, so we can uh, implement them in the in our um, uh, guidelines and see how they are doing. So let me ask you this: You take then the guideline as being sort of the sort of the penultimate um, source of evidence. Um, would that be fair, or is there, or is there something beyond the guideline that you're looking at? Well, if, well, the guideline is one thing, and also we try to look at, well, so where's the, the most money involved, and what are the, the procedures we're doing most frequently? Okay, so your targets are going to be based on gaps from guidelines, and more, and, and similarly also with just topical and cost, and co- yeah. potential cost-saving maneuvers as well for the healthcare yeah, system. Yeah, and quality improvement for the patients. It's just, uh, it's, I need to be clear on this, it's not just cost-saving. Sometimes we can find new evidence and it's more expensive, but it's, it's actually uh, much better for the patient. But oftentimes the um, uh, cost savings are involved if the quality of the care is better. Well, let me ask you this then. What is your general impression of guidelines that relate to the practice of orthopedic surgery? Do we have enough? Uh, do you believe the quality of the way they're conducted is appropriate? Um, is the quality of the evidence the challenge? Is it all of the above? Like, what's the what's the issue? Well, I think the main issue is that we uh, do have a lot of unanswered questions. So, uh, the the the, the uh, evidence that's out there is also based on randomized trials, 
if, if you're lucky. Uh, and if, the, if it's based on a randomized trials, there's often a lot of patients excluded from these trials. Like for instance, for example, uh, patients with mental impairment in hip fractures, they're often excluded from our trials, also the trials we're running. So um, if you have a guideline, the guideline uh, does not imply for these patients. And um, so we need to find uh, trials that actually also include these patients. So real world evidence is one of the uh, modern things to talk about. It's uh, maybe a bit of a hype, uh, but I, I've got some thoughts how we can um, uh, cover these issues. Because um, if, um, uh, if you can look at a guideline, if, especially if there's a weak recommendation, uh, it's interesting how we implement these guidelines today. We say, okay, we developed the guideline. Good luck. Here's the guideline. Start using it. Right. Well, um, that's what, what normally happens now. And then uh, there's actually quite an unstructured way to start using this guideline. So maybe we can learn from other groups that uh, you can uh, implement a guideline in a stepped way, like in a stepped wedged randomized design where you implement the guideline in just one hospital, then randomize uh, in which hospital the, the guideline will be involved next. So, and then truly implementing these guidelines to see how it affects the care. And since it's a guideline, it applies to all patients. So if you collect the data of all these patients, you can see if the guideline is actually working. So it's an experimental way of implementing guidelines or modulus of a guideline. So maybe it's not the complete guideline, just one modeler. And see how it's picked up in this hospital, see what is uh, the effect on the outcome of the patients. Uh, and um, see if it's actually working for in this real world. So then you have the real world evidence based on true experiments. That's interesting. It, you know, so the, that's uh, uh, maybe a way to, to start this. Well, let me see this. Oh, I mean, what, one of the bigger challenges, one of the bigger challenges that I think um, guideline developers face, one is um, the quality of the primary evidence. But let's just say that you have a recommendation. You have some sort of recommendation. Correct. Compliance with that guideline becomes another issue. So the concept of real world evidence also, I'm sure builds in some of the barriers and the challenges of implementing guidelines. Is the work you're thinking of doing also gonna be evaluating ways in which you can actually implement information? Because so much, you, you, you use the example of you know, hip fracture care, but the truth yeah. of the matter is there are probably 50, 60, 70, 100 different guidelines and different approaches, all using bits and pieces of the same fundamental database. Yeah. So we don't have unifying guidelines that apply to everyone. So, you know, there's regional differences. How do you get compliance with even the beginning part of a guideline so you can start testing it? Or is compliance one of the measures in your real world? Wait, wait, well, that that would be um, one way of looking at it. Um, so another way is maybe uh, also discuss with the insurance companies to uh, fund, uh, uh, well, uh, to pay for evidence that's actually working. So for mm -hmm. treatments that have, are working, uh, for instance, there was now a big discussion on Twitter about uh, cementing or uncemented uh, hemiarthroplasties for hip fractures. Mm -hmm. I think the evidence is building that uh, you need to cement these uh, uh, hemiarthroplasties and not uh, have them uncemented. Uh, while in the US, uh, most uh, surgeons use hemiarthroplasties, you need to persuade the surgeons to start doing this. And so if you, if you perhaps pay more for uh, following the guideline, 
uh, than just doing uh, the trick of the surgery. This may help. Uh, that's interesting, and and obviously cost becomes a, a factor as you as you as you yeah. talked about. So, what exactly? And maybe you haven't haven't gone this far. How do you then like? What will be the process in which you're going to be identifying specifically identifying targets for? research. So you said that you're going to be looking at gaps from particular guidelines that they identify. Yep. And you'll also be looking specifically at potential, you know, large burdens of cost to the healthcare system. Any other sources of which you'll be identifying, yep. you know, where, where to spend your time and how to focus it? Well, the, 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 the sources where we can identify them is also to uh, have uh, patients involved to see what they really think is yeah. important. Uh, because they've um, maybe other priorities uh, than we have. Um, so uh, patient involvement is very critical to see uh, what they truly think is important to, to evaluate. And maybe uh, the next level also is if, if we have the patients involved and um, we see how uh, the findings are implemented, they can be maybe implemented through the patients. The patients, if they're um, asked in shared decision making, what do you think? Uh, they can also uh, fall back on the evidence they uh, created with us. Oh, that's, that's absolutely superb. Um, have you had any experience uh, thus far with, with including patients in the design of your work? I know you've done quite a bit of work on value-based uh, healthcare. So I'm curious how that yeah. all fits in. Well, well the, the, um, uh, in our uh, value-based healthcare group, uh, we also have patients involved that actually um, uh, underwent some kind of treatment that is a topic of this uh, value-based healthcare uh, project. For instance, for hip um, arthroplasties, for osteoarthritis, uh, we had two patients involved. And they um, uh, actually asked us questions, well, why should I sleep on my back uh, following uh, the surgery? And this was a very traditional that you need to lay on your back for six weeks, you need to use crutches for six weeks. And um, they challenged this. So why should I be on my back. I, I'm not comfortable on my back and uh, I want to uh, lay on my side and uh, see. Um, um, so we went and looked into the literature and found that uh, there were actually quite some trials that looked at this and there was no evidence that laying on your uh, side or uh, having less restrictions resulted in more dislocations. So we implemented this in, in a group of seven hospitals in the Netherlands uh, to see if it was actually working and uh, our dislocation rate didn't go up. So this is a typical example of a, of a question of a patient uh, and implement this. And also we, we um, uh, this is one uh, in the value-based healthcare project. So that's smaller, but in the br uh, bigger scheme of things, we have uh, patients involved in, in our prioritizing sessions that's uh, uh, made with um, uh, the Dutch Orthopedic Association uh, supported by the Knowledge Institute. Uh, and we uh, try to uh, identify these unanswered questions together with patients and surgeons and insurance companies uh, to see um, what are the best questions uh, that we can answer and uh, to put our money for research. Uh, superb. One big challenge that uh, I think that, you know, I think our group in orthopedics recognized some years ago, and we tried really hard to do this, uh, which is collaborative research, right? And more importantly, yeah. within collaborative research, diversity within research. So, you know, yeah. we're everyone's so siloed. So as an orthopedic surgeon, 
Are you also looking for different stakeholders to be involved? Oh, sorry. But you mentioned, you mentioned patients. Absolutely. Right. But are there other groups like, are, are, is it just surgeons and patients? Is it multiple uh, medical specialists? No, no, no. no it's a, Who, who's involved in the, uh, the team? Well, that, that's, a, that, that's a very good question. And um, I'm happy you are asking this question because this is the next level we're working on right now to get the modular research question agenda and to get other patient uh, folks involved, not only patients, but radiologists, uh, uh, rehab doctors, uh, and also uh, microbiologists to, to get the bigger scheme of things, um, infection doctors, not, not just uh, our silo as uh, orthopedic surgeons, but just uh, wider on a broader perspective and to see if we can collab collaborate and, um, um, well, find the real answers. That's, and that's what we're doing now. Got it. And maybe you could speak a little bit, Rudolph, to the general topic areas. I know broadly orthopedics would be the broader context, but are there specific targets within that that you're currently looking at in your, in your early stages? Well, what we're looking at now is the, uh, the um, conditions that are uh, frequent. So, for, for example, uh, osteoarthritis uh, of the hip. Uh, and knee. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, patients uh, with uh, knee osteoarthritis uh, get, receiving a total knee uh, replacement are not that happy. So uh, how come that about 20% of the patients uh, with a total knee mm -hmm. are still having a lot of, lot of complaints? So th this is a, a typical group we're looking at. And also one of the, the, the big questions that are still unanswered is uh, cementing or not uh, for primary uh, hip replacement. And um, so we're looking into this uh, with a, uh, actually a quite new design. I think it's new for orthopedics, uh, but we stole this from uh, the econometrist. And uh, this is a regression discontinuity design. And maybe I can uh, uh, explain a bit about this. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. So uh, f usually the, uh, the, the registry studies uh, we're looking at uh, are about the complete population. So lots of patients. Uh, and uh, for instance, uh, we've got 400,000 uh, patients in the, uh, the Dutch uh, uh, registry for uh, implants. And um, uh, so th they're covering 99% of all uh, hip arthroplasties. And um, the uh, patients, they uh, are from quite young to very old. So, and then we Try, tend to have uh, cemented implants for the older patients, but uncemented implants for the younger patients. So and it's, it's quite impossible because they're quite uh, different patients. So um, what we're looking at now is we went to look at um, uh, if there was a, a certain cutoff for age, uh, because in our hospital here in Amsterdam, we have a age cutoff for, uh, for instance, for uh, females, it's a, uh, 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 65 years old. So if you're older than 65 years old because of the osteoporosis, uh, we get you a cemented hip. And if you're younger, you get an uncemented hip. So um, if you compare a 50-year-old lady to an 80-year-old lady, this won't work uh, to see if cementing is better than uncementing. But we're, what we're looked at, since we have these big data right now, um, we looked at, so if you look at one year, uh, uh, beyond this cutoff point. So we have a cutoff of 
65. So we start looking at the 64-year-olds and 66-year-olds. And uh, these are quite comparable. And since we have so many patients in this database, uh, we can answer this question with about 20,000 uh, patients and uh, uh, get some causal inference that, uh, that it was not possible uh, with a randomized trial uh, because it's hard to pull off a randomized trial for so many patients. Uh, so this uh, fuzzy regression discontinuity design uh, may help us to get, find causal inference on, on, on this question. Yeah, and I think that's wonderful because I think we're seeing so much and you've used the word real, real world evidence quite a bit. And I think yeah. that's, that's really important that we always be looking to challenge ourselves with new approaches to looking at information. The biggest fear, I'm sure you have the same uh, always sense of, you know, being a little bit more conservative with data is we don't know if we're right. You know, if, if you find something with data, how yeah. careful, especially, and I'll just divert a little bit to what's happening in COVID. <clears throat> we're seeing 600, 700 randomized trials on various treatments. We're seeing policies that are promoting, like really promoting drugs that when you look at the actual paper and you look carefully at the paper, you realize the effect is so small, but it's yeah. being promoted as, you know, a cure. Um, that's the risk, right? When, you know, as researchers and academics, we always say, okay, let's be careful about how do we temper that? So in a situation where you're using a new design or in a situation in which you're thinking about, um, you know, whether you're going to have a quote recommendation for a path for a trial, let's say, or one of your things, how will you be just using the standards that we typically use? In other words, if it's not randomized, for example, are you gonna be less co confident or will you still be pushing the non-randomized data you know, with, with confidence if you believe that effect is real? Well, that, that's what we try to learn from, from other specialties like the yeah. econometrists. Yeah. Uh, because the econometrists, they, they, they were never able to uh, to do randomized trials, but they are looking for causal inference in existing data. Uh, and this, uh, this cutoff uh, design, uh, this uh, regression discontinuity design, uh, actually came from the econometrist uh, because uh, sometimes policies are started um, and um, uh, then uh, there's an age cut, cutoff, for instance, for drinking and driving and stuff right. like that. And if you compare those, uh, then you can find really interesting stuff. Uh, so it's a, it's a different way of thinking, and that's what also is needed, that we get out of our silos and start uh, having um, connections with, uh, with other uh, research groups to see if we can find these other designs to look at big data and, um, and try to um, find answers. Oh, superb. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, no, that's great. Um, when you think now about the future, yeah. um, let's say the next year, uh, given the fact that we still are under some policies of physical distancing, things aren't quite, quote, business as usual. How will you be advancing this initiative? Well, the, 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 the good thing is um, uh, that we uh, are, can collaborate online and we can uh, uh, chat on the new research agendas uh, through uh, meetings like we're having right now. Uh, and um, uh, so that's possible. Uh, so also we have time to uh, to write grants and uh, to uh, uh, submit them, and also uh, we've got a lot of um, uh, well data available in these registries uh, we're running in, uh, in Northern Europe. So uh, there, there's lots of uh, uh, data available 
to look at and maybe with these new designs we don't need to do a randomized trial maybe it's it's cheaper and also we're thinking of uh, doing different randomized trials so more pragmatic randomized trials where the registry is actually the endpoint so you don't need to set up the complete endpoint system uh, assessor uh, outcome assessor system uh, because we have an outcome system that's the registry so for example we're also uh, running a uh, dual mobility trial now uh, so to see if this will prevent uh, uh, dislocation in primary hips uh, we are running uh, this will involve uh, 1100 patients uh, and so the the endpoint is in the registry so uh, it's 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 less complicated uh, to um, to do this so we should maybe look at less complicated trials that are actually giving us answers without uh, over complicating things I think you're right. It was many, many decades ago that uh, Salim Youssef and Richard Pito uh, both had written a paper on the large, simple trial. Now, whether it's a randomized trial or whether it's a large Sorry, trial. Sorry, well, I missed a bit. There was, oh, okay. there was a, a connection glitch, so <laughs> okay. I, I missed that. Sorry. Yeah, so the point I was just going to say that it was about, about 50 years ago or so that Salim Youssef and Richard Pito both wrote a paper called The Large, Simple Trial. Yeah. And the argument is whether it's randomized or whether it's observational doesn't make a difference. I mean, it makes a difference, you know, from the purist point of view, but the issue was keep something simple, recruit yeah. patients fast, recruit patients in full, collect as much data as you can and move on to the next big question. Yeah. Trials, trials have become unnecessarily complicated, as you know, yeah, um, yeah. And there's lots of barriers then for that purpose. So I think reinventing the large, simple study is a really important movement yeah right? yeah it's great congratulate you on doing that that's, that's yeah wonderful. so and, and maybe also look at uh, um, the natural experiments i think there's uh, uh, there uh, well people uh, uh, like to discuss about this now uh, for instance if you break your hip uh, in front of our hospitals uh, hospital you would just traditionally get a direct lateral approach yeah. uh, or you would uh, if you fall a couple of miles away from here uh, and then you would, you would get a post-lateral approach so um, it depends on where you actually fracture your hip what kind of treatment you get uh, and so uh, if we look at the hospitals that are in the Netherlands um, that are uh, having this different approach usually the hospital has uh, standardized their approach to post-lateral or direct lateral so and we can collect these data also in the registry uh, to see uh, if there's a difference so these are all the patients uh, so no one is excluded uh, and it's actually quite a nice natural experiment. Uh, maybe it's not giving the, the, the definitive answer, but this is one of the trials we're running right now. Uh, we're running this natural experiment and the hospitals that can randomize, they randomize the patients to the uh, posterior approach or the direct lateral approach for hemiarthroplasties. And we include all patients, also the patients with severe dementia. Uh, to, to find these answers and find answers for all the patients, not just uh, the ones that are fit and uh, uh, are always uh, involved in trials, also the ones that are not fit. Ah, superb. And, you know, I think on that note, I will uh, thank you very much for sharing with us some of your insights um, and congratulate you on moving forward. I mean, I think the cycle of research is critically important but the cycle of improving research and finding treatments that are gonna ultimately help us in decision-making are uh, much, much needed. So again, Rudolf, uh, thank you so much for taking time with us today in Orthopod. 
and uh, we will definitely be looking forward to hearing more about the work you're doing, both in the area of cycle improvement, but also in the area of value-based healthcare.